call your attention to verses 39 through 43, the text for the sermon. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. We return to Friday of the Passion Week, the peak of our Lord's sufferings. The trials are finished. The verdict is clear. Christ is innocent. He's a righteous man. And yet innocently, he is condemned to death. Delivered by the Roman governor to the will of the people who are thirsty for the blood of the Christ of God. The Christ of God is beaten by the whole band of the Roman soldiers. He is mocked. A cross, a heavy wooden cross is laid upon his back and he is led through the streets of Jerusalem to the place. The place outside the walls of the city called Calvary. Golgotha in the Hebrew translated to be the place of the skull. Because likely that hill outside the city bore some resemblance, an eerie resemblance of a skull, but more so because upon the crest of the hill of the skull, much blood was shed. Many died. It was the place of execution. A place where the Romans dealt with the worst of the worst. A place where criminals were nailed to crosses to linger in pain, dying for hours, to Calvary, the Christ of God is led. Numbered with the transgressors. And as the gospel tells us, Jesus was brought there with two malefactors. Word malefactor, it's a big word. Some of you children might wonder what it means, what a malefactor is. A malefactor is just an evildoer. It refers to a criminal, someone that has done wrong. Two malefactors are crucified with Jesus, one on his right and one on his left. These malefactors weren't just petty thieves. They were criminals, robbers, one of the gospel calls them, guilty of terrible crimes, the worst of the worst, and Jesus is counted to be among them, crucified between two malefactors. But now, the Gospel of Luke, as it describes the the scene on the crest of Calvary, includes a detail that is unique just to this Gospel. The detail of Jesus' conversation with one of the malefactors that was nailed to his own cross beside our Lord. A conversation which is so very startling, so very amazing. 
And so very rich and comforting when we dig into what it means. The conversation, the words exchanged between the one who would be called the penitent malefactor and the Lord. The man who by the grace of God is suddenly and strikingly converted who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repents of his sins and is received by grace alone into the kingdom that Christ establishes. And how thankful, how thankful we ought to be that this little detail, this little aspect of the story of what happened on Calvary is included in the gospel. It is included here for our comfort. Here we see that grand theme of Luke come out again. Luke, which depicts Jesus as the merciful Savior of the lost. The Savior who came to seek and to save the lost. And as Jesus himself is dying upon the cross of Calvary, he's doing just that. He is shedding his blood to save the lost. We see that in the salvation of this most lost of men. And in this we see what Christ, through his work on the cross, has done for you and me. For we ought to see ourselves reflected in this penitent malefactor, a poor, wretched sinner deserving death, yet mercifully, graciously saved by the dying Savior. It's a beautiful word, most extraordinary word, for our comfort In which God's grace is magnified as we see the fruits of that grace in this man, in his confession, in his prayer, and in the beautiful promise that God gives him. We see, we see here what is happening on the cross and what the cross does for you and me too. So let us consider this beautiful portion of the Gospel of Luke this Good Friday. The salvation of the penitent malefactor. And we're going to consider it under the theme... The dying Savior saves a dying sinner. And in that, we see ourselves too. The dying Savior saves a dying sinner. Let's notice first the humble confession of the dying sinner. Secondly, the earnest petition of the dying sinner. And then finally, the comforting promise given to him by the dying yet conquering Savior. The scene of Calvary unfolds before us with something quite different from humble confession. As the scene unfolds before us, what we hear, first of all, is mockery and blasphemy. Verses 35 through 39, the first verse of our text, describe the outpouring of abuse upon the head of the crucified Christ. The reproach and the abuse that marked the first period of time after our Lord was crucified. After he was put upon the cross, our Lord suffered innumerable reproaches. The rulers of the people started it. They were gleeful. They were there. Because they wanted to see the work they had begun come to its finish. The leaders of the Jews stood at the foot of the cross to mock and to taunt the crucified Christ. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he be the Christ, the chosen of God. 
A Savior? Look at Him. A Savior? Hanging on a Roman cross? This man claims to be the Christ of God? It's laughable. Look at Him. Come now if you are the Christ. Come down. Show us your power. The fact that you hang there dying proves that you are not what you claim to be. They mock. They taunt Him. Surely the Son of God would have power to save Himself. Surely the Christ of God would be rescued of the God who delights in Him. He is not who He claims to be. This mocking started by the rulers was a contagious mocking that spread to the others there around the cross. The passers-by wagged their heads and joined in reviling Him. The soldiers, bored on their execution duty that day, quickly joined in jeering at the crucified Christ. Not only that, the two criminals on his right and on his left are caught up and join in in the jeering. Both the Gospels of Mark and Matthew make clear that at first, both of these malefactors mocked the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 27 verse 44 says that they both cast the same in his teeth. And that should surprise us that these men who are in excruciating pain hanging on their own crosses can find the breath to expend in mocking the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet they do. This all in fulfillment of the scriptures that the man of sorrows would be despised and rejected of all. And all of the mocking and the taunting of these different groups of people each added drops to the cups of our Lord's suffering. And yet, at some point, one voice, which had before joined in the jeering, one voice fell silent. The voice of one of the crucified malefactors. Not because the pain became too much and got to him, though that pain of crucifixion was great, but rather, as is evident from the text, a mysterious inward change was wrought in his heart by the sovereign hand of God, and the first evidence of it was that his voice fell silent. Fell silent as he beheld. The crucified Christ. As Jesus, having been nailed to the cross and lifted up, did not curse. As no evil words passed his lips, but instead as the Christ prayed aloud. And he prayed a prayer unlike any prayer this man had ever heard prayed. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do, what an impression it made upon this man's heart to hear Christ pray for his crucifiers and for the mockers. For Christ had his elect among their number for whom he prayed. He was impressed. Impressed 
As Jesus silently endured the contradiction of sinners, as he was reviled, yet he reviled not again. How Jesus, even in the throes of his agony, all of his words were seasoned with grace. The light of his nobility and righteousness shone through his words, his actions, and his bearing, even as he suffered upon the cross. In short, the malefactor falls silent as he sees and comes to the realization that this man is more than just a man. He's a just man. And more than just a just man, perhaps the superscription above his head is truth. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. What we see here is God's grace. Even on that terrible hilltop, that horrific scene of Calvary, of execution, of blood, of crying, of tears and sweat. Here we see the grace of God manifested. The grace of God working in a dying thief's heart. Stopping his mouth, opening his eyes, turning his heart from the sin in which he had lived. Turning him to the crucified Christ there beside him. A spark of light in the darkness. A spirit kindled flame. True faith ignited in the most unexpected way. Light that blazed forth. The suffering and death there on Calvary. A wonder of grace. That's what the text describes for us. And now... From the heart and from the mouth of this dying malefactor, the dying Christ, the dying Savior, draws forth a humble confession. A humble, beautiful confession of a poor sinner. Text makes clear in verse 39 that the immediate occasion for this this confession is the continued mocking Of the other malefactor on the other side of the Lord. Verse 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying. If thou be the Christ save thyself and us. Railed. And the word there is literally blasphemed. The other malefactor on the other side of Jesus. Continued to rail upon the Lord. We see that his suffering did not improve him. Suffering doesn't improve wicked men. It only draws their wickedness out of them. This man taunted Christ. If you really are who you say you are, save yourself and save us. Not asking for true salvation, but asking for an escape from the consequences of his sin, the pain and the suffering and the death of the of crucifixion that he was then enduring. And it is then that this other malefactor who had fallen silent speaks up again And rebukes his former companion in sin. And here is where we see the humble confession drawn by the grace of God. Out of the heart and lips of this malefactor. Verses 40 and 41. But the other answering rebuked him saying. Dost not thou fear God? Seeing thou art in the same condemnation. And we indeed justly. For we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. Do not fear God. We are all in the same condemnation. We are suffering at the hand of the Roman state for our crimes. And you and I, we have been sentenced to this justly. Do not fear God. 
Not so this man. He has done nothing amiss. He's innocent. Do not fear God. You and I shall soon be before the judgment seat of God. Shall you spend your last moments cursing an innocent man? But then this malefactor who will soon properly be called the penitent malefactor utters a humble confession. Demonstrating his repentance. That's what's in those words. It's not just a rebuke of his former companion in sin. It's a confession. We indeed justly. And part of that is I indeed justly. That's the heart of it. I indeed justly am receiving the due reward for my deeds. The man is not just saying that the Roman state had a right to put him to death, but this man is acknowledging before God his life of sin and that he is worthy on account of that sin to die. He owns his guilt. And in this penitent malefactor's words, we hear an echo of David in Psalm 32 verse 5. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I I am a guilty sinner worthy of death. That's what he says of himself. But this man hath done nothing amiss. He points to Jesus. He is righteous. The placard above his head. So very different from the one above mine. The placard above this thief's head and the other thief's head. Read their charges. Thievery. Burglary. Robbery. Murder perhaps. But what accusation was etched in the placard above Jesus, had none, because there was none. Nothing but his identity. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And for that, he was being put to death, because of who he was, the Christ of God. He is righteous. He has done nothing amiss. And that word amiss literally means out of place. Striking. This man sees... Not not only is Jesus, not only has he not done any terrible crime, but he has not even done something out of place, not even done something improper. He is righteous, perfectly righteous. We see here this malefactor's newly kindled faith, bearing forth faith's first fruit. And faith's first fruit is genuine repentance and sincere confession of sin. Turning in sorrow from that sin and turning to God. And that, by grace, is what this man is doing here. It is a wonder of grace. Two malefactors, one on each side, of the dying Christ. Both of these malefactors equally involved in sin, equally worthy of death, and yet one. As he hangs upon the cross, by grace, passes from death into life. Even though both heard the words of Jesus, both saw what he did, yet one believes and one does not. One repents and the other does not. Why? Grace. Sovereign, electing grace. Christ. On his cross was a saver of life unto life for one. And a saver of death unto death for the other. The sheep and the goats were separated at the cross. 
And this sheep, who looked so much like a goat, was saved by the grace of God. That comes out, is seen in his humble petition. But that's just the beginning of the history. From humble petition, we are led, or rather from humble confession, we are led to an earnest petition. The penitent malefactor turns from his rebuke of his former colleague in sin, turns to Jesus Christ who is hanging beside him. And he addresses him with an earnest petition in verse 42. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Lord, remember me. Now as we look at this earnest petition rising from the changed heart of the penitent malefactor, let's first notice that contained within this earnest petition, contained within it, is a sincere and heartfelt confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His petition is also a public confession of his faith. He believes that Jesus is the Christ. The king of the Jews. The king who has a kingdom. Notice how he addresses Jesus. No longer is Jesus the object of ridicule. Lord. Lord. And that's not just being polite. Lord. This is how the malefactor now sees the dying Christ beside him. He sees him as Lord, Master, Ruler of all. Not merely a Lord, but Lord, my Lord. This is who you are to me. The Christ of God, my Lord. The King. Lord, remember me. When thou comest into thy kingdom, only one kind of Lord has a kingdom, a king. Jesus is the king. Jesus has the kingdom. Every word of the superscription above Jesus' head is true and declares the very identity of this dying man on the cross. This is Jesus, the king, the king. David's greater son, the Messiah. So striking is it not, this newly kindled faith of the penitent malefactor, this man understands something. He understands something that still to so many of Jesus' disciples was not fully comprehended. He understood something of the reality that Jesus is a spiritual king and that his kingdom is not of this world. Think about it. He addresses a dying man upon the cross and he says to him, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. From an earthly point of view, that's an insane thing to say. The man is dying. He's not entering into his kingdom. He's going down into the grave. How can he remember you? Faith. That's the language of faith. God had so worked in this man's heart that he perceived something of who Jesus was and the nature of his kingdom and what he was doing and where he was going. And this man wanted to be there with him. He wanted to be remembered by Jesus. 
Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. For thou art king, thou art the Christ. And I know that even in dying, you are going to where you mean to go. Even in dying, you are the victorious king. The dying malefactor confesses that Jesus is Lord and Savior, even as he hangs there on the cross dying. Even in Jesus' deepest humiliation, this man sees him as Lord and King. What an insight. What a light of faith God gave him at this moment. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. It's a confession of amazing faith. But now arising from that God-given faith, the penitent malefactor then lays before his dying Savior his most earnest request. That's what verse 42 is. It's a confession. But that confession is embedded in a request, an earnest petition. Remember me. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Hours before, this man never would have thought to say something like that. He was a lost sinner, dead in trespasses and sins, caring nothing for the kingdom of God or for things spiritual, caring only for himself, dreading the horrible predicament in which he found himself as in a condemned criminal going to an excruciating death on Calvary's hill. Now he's a changed man, and this is his inmost deepest desire. This is the thing that stands in the forefront of his mind, that looms in front of him, before even the pain that he is experiencing. Lord, remember me. Remember me. What does he mean? What is he asking? Remember me. Much more than just recall my name, or think about me from time to time. What did Joseph mean? Joseph, after he interpreted the butler and the baker's dreams in the Egyptian jail cell, he said, remember me. He meant, remember me for good when you are released, butler, and you go back to Pharaoh. Make mention of me. Bring me out of this prison into which I have been thrust unjustly. Similar idea is here. What is the penitent malefactor asking? Lord, remember me and save me. Keep me as your own beyond this death into which I am entering. Save me. And when thou comest into thy kingdom, do not forget me. Do not forsake me. Do not cast me away. But include me. Give me a place. Whatever that place may be, give me a place in thy kingdom. It is a humble petition. It is the heart cry of a believing sinner who knows he's worthy of nothing, but who casts himself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. It's a prayer, petition for the forgiveness of sins. In the admittance into the kingdom. Notice this man doesn't point to anything. 
He doesn't try to bargain with Jesus. He doesn't try to lay down grounds for his request because he has none. He's a malefactor. He's been a malefactor apparently his whole life. He had nothing but a mountain of sins. He has nothing to give to Christ. Nothing upon which to base his plea other than the mercy that he has seen. In this dying Christ, this Lord, this King, this Savior, Dying Christ, who this man believes is mighty to save a dying sinner like him. Little did this man know or fully understand that that's what the cross was all about. That's why Jesus was there. That's why he came into the world to die, to pay for the sins. All of his elect throughout the whole world and in all ages to wash their sins away in his precious blood, to make atonement, to satisfy divine justice, to accomplish reconciliation between God and his people, to open up the gates of the kingdom of heaven to all of God's people. Little did this man know that that is exactly what Christ was doing there as he hung on the cross, dying. The dying Savior. Establishing his kingdom and saving his people by dying. By dying for them. With this earnest petition, this new believer casts himself on nothing but the mercy of Christ. What instruction there is for us here, beloved, that we see here. Is salvation in its purest. When we come to God. We bring nothing of our own. We are this malefactor. For who among us can say we are any better? Sure we may not be guilty of burglary. Or outright murder. But every believer knows the multitude and the gravity of his sins. Who would dare to say we differ from this man? We have nothing to give to God as a ground for his acceptance of us. Nothing but a lifetime's mountain of sins. We come with this one plea. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Remember me for Jesus' sake. The sole basis, what he's done, his mercy, his grace, his atonement, his work. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Our plea is the same. And with that plea upon our lips, we see and we experience the comfort that comes from the Savior's comforting promise. That was then given to this penitent malefactor. The last verse of our text contains Jesus' answer to the penitent malefactor's earnest petition. Verse 43, And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Here's Jesus' second crossword. The first we read earlier in Luke 23, Father, forgive them. 
for they know not what they do. He had prayed for the salvation of the ignorant and sinning elect gathered around his cross. That centurion and some of his men who were driving the nails into him. Perhaps others. Even including this malefactor who at first mocked him. Father, forgive them. And now Jesus speaks his second crossword, which is a declaration of salvation. A beautiful word of salvation. A word declaring what the dying Christ is doing by dying here on the cross. He's opening up paradise for his people. And he declares now this word of salvation, a word of blessed forgiveness to this man in this hour when he needs it most. We see how gracious, how kind our Savior is. Even in the midst of his own suffering, Jesus is on the cross. And his cross isn't equal to the crosses of the two malefactors because Jesus isn't just suffering the physical pain of crucifixion, but the weight of the wrath of God is coming upon him. The three hours of darkness are looming before him. He is drinking the cup. The cup of wrath. And even in the midst of suffering that human comprehension cannot cannot grasp, Jesus loves and cares. This poor sinner Came to seek and save the lost. Even as he dies on the cross. He's doing just that. Saving the lost. His answer to the prayer is. I will remember you. When I come into my kingdom. That's what he says. But he says it in far more beautiful words. Verily I say unto thee. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Thou shalt be with me in paradise. I have saved you. I will keep you. You are mine. I will bring you through death into my kingdom. My kingdom. The life of which is paradise. Paradise. Paradise is a beautiful word. It's an old Persian word. That originally described beautiful royal garden in a palace. It's a word fitly applied to Eden. It's a word that speaks of peace, of rest, of joy, of delight, of refreshment. That is what life is like in the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of the Prince of Peace. The kingdom of the victorious Savior. It's paradise. The complete opposite of everything that's going around on the hill crest of Calvary. Everything this man experiences now, the blood, the sweat, the pain. Jesus says, thou shalt be with me in paradise. When Jesus said that, it was a declaration of forgiveness. This man who had come to repentance and come to faith. He feared that he would forever be barred from the kingdom of Christ. On account of that mountain of his life of sin. Sometimes we feel that fear too. When we see our sins. Which would seem to shut the doors of the kingdom to us. 
Jesus declares forgiveness to him today. Thou shalt be with me in paradise. None of that mountain of sins. None of them will keep you from my kingdom. You are forgiven. On the basis of what I'm doing right here. Dying on this cross for you. In Jesus' words, the penitent malefactor heard the verdict of God himself. Even though the Roman court had said, guilty, condemned to die. The verdict which this man now hears sounding from heaven, coming to him in the words of Jesus Christ is, righteous. Heir of eternal life. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That's the wonderful word of salvation from the dying Savior to this dying sinner to assure him. To put his soul at rest. So that this man, just as the publican went down to his house justified, this man might go to his death justified. Paradise, with me, Jesus says, with me. Jesus is in control here. He lays down his life when he intends to, and he will go first. At the precise moment he intends, he will commend his spirit to the Father. and He will die. and He will be waiting then for this new believer in paradise. Today thou shalt be with me. Me, with me in paradise. And that especially explains why the kingdom, why heaven is paradise. Because Jesus is there. Because Jesus is there. And there we shall live with him. Enjoy his fellowship forevermore. Today, Jesus says. Today. The malefactor had spoken about the future. Remember me. When thou comest into thy kingdom. And that when is ambiguous. We don't know what was going on in the malefactor's mind. What he was thinking. Perhaps he was thinking about the day when the Messiah would return and raise the dead. Remember me then. But whatever he thought. His thinking was future. And Jesus comes to him with this comforting word. Not in the future. Today. Today. Not after you linger in the grave for a long time. Not after going to some purgatorial dungeon to pay for your lifetime of sins. Not after a long dark sleep of the soul. Today, immediately, in the moment of your death, you will be with me in paradise. It's a promise. It's certain. Thou shalt. Verily, truly I say unto thee, I say unto thee, I, the king, say unto you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Comfort, comfort to this newly saved sinner, penitent malefactor, dying on his cross beside the dying Savior. Beloved, it's a gracious promise that Jesus speaks to you and to me as much as he spoke it to that malefactor 
It's a promise he speaks to all of his elect, to all believers. Believing malefactors are we all. It's a promise that gives such comfort. Gave comfort to this man. We don't read anything more after verse 43. Nothing more about this man until later we read about the Roman soldiers coming and breaking his legs to hasten his death. No more words are exchanged. What happened? Well, he continued suffering. He was nailed to a cross after all. And death by crucifixion took a long time. In the evening hour, he was still lingering. And that's why his legs were broken by a Roman hammer to hasten his death. He went back to suffering and dying. But dying differently. He had peace. Peace that passed all understanding. He suffered. Yes, he suffered on that cross under the sword of the magistrate, but he suffered with peace, knowing that he was not condemned before God, but forgiven, knowing that at the end of his earthly sufferings, at the moment of his death, he would not plunge into the chasm of hell, but would enter the kingdom of Christ. He went into his sufferings with Jesus' word of salvation resounding in his heart and in his mind. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Luke doesn't have to say anything more. We know what happened to this malefactor. He died happily and went to be with Christ in paradise. That's what the cross accomplishes for poor sinners. That's the gracious promise of God you and to me. That's what the dying Savior has done for us. Sinners who are by nature spiritually dead. Sinners living in the midst of death. Sinners who are dying daily. Those for whom the grave the grave will come. We have this promise. Jesus shall be with me in paradise. Shows us, this history does, it shows us what the cross is all about. This beautiful story shows us what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He has died to save his people from their sins. And in saving us from our sins, he has saved us from death, from all evil, from all pain, from all suffering, from all tears, from all of it. That's what the cross has accomplished. Saved us from that. To give us paradise. This text comforts us in showing that Jesus died to save those who seemingly were hopelessly lost. The worst of sinners. That's what this malefactor was. He was a lifelong sinner. A lifelong unbeliever. And yet he was God's child. And the powerful blood of Christ was abundantly sufficient to wipe away his sins. Does Satan whisper in your ear? You're not a child of God. Look at your sins. Look how big that one was. Look at the pattern throughout your life. Wretched malefactor. There's only one place for you. It's a lie. This is what Jesus says. 
to all of his people. Today thou wilt be with me in paradise. Jesus seeks and saves even the hopelessly lost and the worst of sinners. And that only magnifies his grace. Live in that comfort. Live in that comfort in the battles of each day, the battles against sin, the trials of this life. Remember that promise of Christ. He remembers you. You are his. He not only remembered this penitent malefactor at the cross, but the names of all of his people were inscribed upon his heart. He was remembering you, and he remembers you now in heaven as he sits at the right hand of God, and as he ministers as your advocate, as he lives evermore to make intercession for us. Remember him and his promise. Whenever our today comes, the day of our death, that will be the day we enter paradise. Live and die happily under the cross of Calvary with this promise of Jesus in your heart and mind. Today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this word of the cross, this beautiful testimony of our Savior concerning our salvation. Bless it to us that it may comfort us and strengthen us for our earthly pilgrimage, that we may rest assured that in Christ we are saved, and through Him we are going to one place only, the paradise of Thee, our God. Hear us in mercy for Jesus' sake. Amen.